Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by our Editor-at-Large, Ann Thompson in Los Angeles. And I'm on your time zone today, and I'm out in San Francisco for the San Francisco Film Festival. The, or I think they go by SF International Film Festival now. The, the film society is SFF Film. It's, there's a lot of Fs going around, but uh, it, it's all sort of a reflection of an institution that's been around a while. I know you've been out here before, and you, you know this. Many uh, times. I love that festival. It's one of the biggest in, in America, along with Seattle. It is, and yeah. Another festival with a lot with It goes S's on for a long, long time. Yeah. It has a very strong local uh, base. But San Francisco is interesting, too, because they also have the funding organization. Yeah. That yeah, really there's a lot of money. A lot of Bay Area There's a lot of money like in the Ryan Bay Area. Kugler. Yeah, Ryan Coogler, Ben Zeitlin. A lot, a lot of people have gotten money, a lot of nonfiction. Uh, filmmakers have gotten grants from this area and, and traveled all over the world. And what's interesting this year is that uh, they're really putting an effort into taking the next step beyond that so that, you know, while it's true that those films got support from the Bay Area, they then went on to gain recognition at other festivals. And so a lot of people don't realize the degree to which San Francisco has been behind these success stories. One of the things they're doing this year that I think is going to be fascinating to watch is they created a new section called Launch uh, with five films that don't have distribution, and they've they've targeted uh, distributors and sales agents they've brought to town to basically create a tiny market for a couple of movies, most of which they've supported. A lot of uh, film festivals do that, although often they're work in progress, quote-unquote. They're right. actually finished. Right, yeah, and this is actually... Carno does that? Yeah, they, and, they uh, do an open doors Car- thing. I mean, yeah. but this is, this is really, these are actual, you know, pr- world premieres, so the opportunity to watch a movie with an audience, see how it plays... You know all that kind of stuff. It's it's an interesting experiment. I think they're really looking at it as. And Toronto a has a section that's basically designed to be that as well. Yeah, but you know Although Toronto is a huge festival. It's going to have a lot of movies that but, haven't been released yet. Exactly, and and a lot of times there's a stigma associated with more local festivals. If it's a world premiere, it's like, well, why isn't it at you know X larger festival? Here it seems it see I haven't seen any of these movies yet. Uh, I can tell you more about them next week. But it seems like they have actually gone for some things. They think. Uh, are going to play well, uh, but they're on a certain level where this gives them more exposure, where they, they they may be buried at other kinds of festivals. So so that's an interesting experiment. They've also launched a, a streaming platform for uh, their film society members. It's kind of interesting that a nonprofit is doing something like that. How does that compare uh, to what Tribeca has done? I, I, well, I mean, I think it's it's sort of similar. It seems like that it's a non-exclusive deal. So these are films that you know, they're not necessarily endangering it's, other kinds of distribution. it's just for their members? It's just for their members, it, but you How can... Many, ha- do they have a lot of members? Well, they have uh, members outside of the Bay Area. So what's interesting about it is that there are films from the festival that will be available for a certain window of time on the platform. So if you're a, Bay, if you're a, a member of the organization, you, you pay them money, uh, you can still see some movies even if you don't live there. And I think that's very smart because as valuable as the local element of a film festival can be, you know, if you can't reach out to people on a national level, then you're never going to be able to completely grow that brand. So it's very smart for this organization that, you know, has had a couple of interesting turns in its most recent history 
to get to that point where it really seems like they're building out a, a 21st century vision. I mean, they were run by Ted Hope for a year. Bingham Ray briefly took over and then tragically passed away just a few months into it. So now it really seems like under Noah Cowan's uh, control as the executive director that there is this really robust uh, plan to modernize the festival. And, um, and you yeah, know, he's been doing a great job he's now. Doing a good job. A few he's a smart guy. He's got a background in distribution and programming. Came from and all Toronto. That. Yeah. And so, he also booked the uh, lighthouse there for a right, while. So right, right, really right. When it launched. Exactly. And he was a distributor at one point. So he knows all the angles. I always love hanging out at Cannes with Noah because he. He uh, he has a very very astute grasp of of what's going on at any given film festival. Yeah, he's got strong opinions too, and that guy can drink. Let me tell you. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm covering all my bases while I'm at this festival, I'm making sure. I... Dragging your feet a little bit today. Yeah, just, just a touch, just a touch. But yeah, I'm just getting started. It's the weekend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see a bunch of stuff. I'm gonna go to some presentations. Ed Catmull from Pixar is giving a state of. The industry presentation, Tom Luddy, the legendary producer and found, co-founder of Telluride, is uh, going to get a tribute. He very rarely does these kinds of That's very well-deserved. So that's pretty cool, and yeah, I'm looking that, forward to that. I wish I could that. be there for that. Yeah, well, you know, you'll read about it. So so that's the festival that's on my agenda, and I, I understand you, you're doing a, a festival thing out in L.A., right? Well, in a much uh, less uh, uh, complete way. I live here, so... <laughs> You know, this week I went to see uh, the opening night of Into the Woods, which is a stripped-down theater uh, production. Uh, Fiasco uh, produced it. It was in London and New York, and it's, you know, where the people on the stage are playing the instruments, and they're all switching parts, and it's very clever and innovative. And if you like Sondheim, head thee to the Amundsen Theater. So that was fun. And then last night was the opening night of the... Uh, annual TCM Classic Film Festival, which comes to uh, the Chinese theater and Hollywood area houses every year. And it is intensive, and there's always these anniversary screenings. And this year they're putting the hands and feet of uh, Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner together. And I think they did that today. Um, the Criterion people were at the opening night uh, party last night. They had a panel this morning, Peter Becker and his his team talking about Filmstruck. Uh, there's going to be some great nitrate prints playing. And I'm really mad because I can't go see Black Narcissus on Saturday night at the Egyptian where they have the the nitrate projector. That's so ice. cool, though. I mean, it just it's, and also thinking about the idea of uh, there's a conversation about Filmstruck, a digital streaming platform, and At the same time, absolutely this, right. It's a great contrast. It's both I mean, celebrating classic films. So I show up at this thing. Well, first of all. The opening night was um, the great 1967 movie that won the Oscar in 1968, Into the Heat of the Night, Norman Jewison. So Sidney Poitier was there, and he got a standing ovation, and Rod Steiger won Best Actor for playing the redneck sheriff in this uh, Mississippi town. Uh, and you feel like it really holds up in It the holds sense up of... really well in a weirdly awful way, because you would think... That 50 years later, 
we would be farther along. And if you look at this movie and you see all these people using the N-word and treating uh, this very dignified and intelligent and capable uh, Philadelphia police officer who is a homicide expert, uh, treating him and calling him boy and you know doing what they do in Mississippi, you realize that we haven't come very far in some ways Sidney Poitier is Barack Obama, and there are wow. a lot of people who resented him for. If being there are any so journalists smart. listening, you just dropped a serious think piece right there. <laughs> I mean, we could have used that during the Obama administration. It's, it's interesting to think about. Ruben I wish Barish's this movie now. could be seen by everyone in the South. In fact, it was interesting. The producer, Walter Marish, um, who, who you know made movies like The Apartment and and. Uh, uh, other great Billy Wilder movies and West Side Story. I mean, he's an amazing, storied, uh, great producer. But he apparently had to make a deal uh, with United Artists that that they wouldn't. They would. They gave him two million dollars to make the movie based on the idea that that's how they could make their money back if it didn't play in the South below the Mason Dixon line. And the whole idea of a guy, a black man on screen slapping a white man was unheard of and terrifying to all. We could and really use this movie. Happened. It's funny to think about, you know, the backlash to that ridiculous Pepsi advertisement. Interesting you know? backlash. I, mean, I the, understand that backlash. Of course. Like, oh, I mean, you watch the thing and it's like, is this some what kind of satire? It? Yeah, I mean, it's like, who did not call them on that? They didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And but it, it only reminds you, it's a reminder why a movie like In the Heat of the Night is something that, still has some kind of value for our culture because clearly we haven't progressed to the point where something like that, you know, doesn't happen by accident. It's a, it's, it's, it's a thing where, where, you know, people didn't want to be touched by a black man. People didn't want to be in a room with a black man. It was unbelievable. And, and, but you watch this Rod Steiger, you watch the two of them, the two great actors sort of reacting to each other, engaging each other and respecting each other. And of course, it's a it's a as as the raw um, the raw Peck, uh, I am not your Negro James Baldwin movie suggested. Um, it's one of these movies that made white people liberal white people feel better about themselves. <laughs> you know, totally, but, uh, very much so. But um, you know, they, it really played well, and and uh, Sidney Poitier got a standing ovation, and and then we you know what I love about the the TCM classic movies is that all these people from all over the world and all over the country come to LA and they spend a fortune, these film buffs. And the people sitting next to me were from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the guy was giving his wife a present and she'd always wanted to come. And then there wow. was a big tribute to Robert Osborne, of course, who died only a month ago. Yeah, so that like, must've been pretty raw. So there was a lot of emotion in the I wasn't a TCM viewer growing up, so I don't have, I mean, I, I, I've interviewed Robert, I interviewed Robert Osborne before and I understand his value now, but I didn't have the same relationship. It was interesting to see people talking about how he really connected with people as this kind of voice of classic film, made classic film interesting as an idea to people. You know, well, that's I think valuable. A lot of people, when I, was, when I looked at the tribute, I could see that a lot of the older stars, people like Robert Wagner and Eva Marie Saint and people who, who've been around for a long time, they, he, they gave him credit for, on some level, reviving their careers <laughs> and making and keeping all of these movies alive. Um, it's really, credit goes to the whole channel, of course, but, but he was the face of the channel. 
Yeah. And now it's Ben Mankiewicz, who I think, you know, does a really good job and is very good and and uh, to the manner born and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me to hear this kind of enthusiasm. I mean, in New York, you know, we live in a bubble in more ways than one. But in terms of, you know, appreciating movies from different time periods, it's just sort of wedded to the sophistication of our repertory scene. You know, it's just everywhere all the time is a classic film festival. But the idea of creating this, like, really big celebration that's exciting to a broad range of people that's, you know, national. They make money from it. They promote their brand. And, of course, Peter Becker was sort of, you know, talking the talk and saying, oh, they're such wonderful partners. And, you know, they back us up and they give us, you know, the go-ahead on things we can do. And, I mean, I think Filmstruck is still finding its way, uh, actually. In, in some ways, but I, but I use it. I like it. I think the interface is, is very usable. Uh, it's good. It's a, incredible how much stuff is on there. And ever it's since... On, it, and they're adding stuff all the time, but yeah. I don't think they're branding the Criterion side of it as much as the TCM side. I like the site, too, and I, and I really enjoy navigating it. I have no trouble with it. But um, at the same time, I, I wonder, uh, you know, how broadly it's... It's, it's, it's something that... Uh, isn't Roku still to come? Aren't they going to? That's bring coming that up. In? Yeah, yeah. I do. I mean, I think it's an interesting. It's an interesting moment for that kind of a platform. I mean, look, we used to be owned by a digital distributor, Snag Films. It's not easy to get this kind of thing off the ground. I was just talking about San Francisco Film Society creating their own streaming platform with a really specific targeted audience, and they're a nonprofit. You know, this is something that's tied into a bigger corporate entity, and it's also got this other company that's a part of it so it's they obviously you know it's going to take some time to figure out exactly what that means i'm just saying as a user i'm very impressed i watch probably more movies at home using that than any other platform and i have to assume that other people who have less access to great cinema uh, I must be noticing on some level, and if they're not, they should because it's. But it, it does fascinates work. me that you have time to watch <laughs> cinema at home. I well, mean, you know, I, I would do more of that if I had time. I mean, I. I, I still love I often movies. Today, <laughs> if I couldn't I'm not working as hard as I am, and if, I can look at more movies for pleasure. No, alone. I mean it's funny. You probably get this sometimes too, where you're at a a party or something and, and somebody who's sort of a friend of a friend knows you work in the business and they're sort of like, hate to make you talk about movies, but blah, 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 blah. Personally, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm enough of a, if I don't have the time to watch movies that aren't there for work, then I get very frustrated because I, I lose touch with what makes this work interesting in the first place. Which is why so. it's so much fun to see in the heat of the night. And I, I, I will also add that I consider Norman Jewison to be uh, one of the great uh, undersung directors. Yeah, he's um, not a household name, really. Not anymore. at all. And he did, you know, he did. He he not only did it in the heat of the night, but he also he also did the Russians are coming, which I think is one of the great uh, '60s movies. Very funny with Alan Arkin, really brilliantly done. He did Moonstruck decades later. Yeah, with, most people don't know that. With uh, with with Cher and and Nick Cage, which is one of the great romances. 
he did Fiddler on the Roof, you know. I mean, he's very, uh, very adept and eclectic and and uh, revered by this kind of audience. Right. It's almost like a Sidney Lumet kind of a thing where there's this broad range of stuff, so it's hard to say he's, you know... Yes, he's not an auteur. An auteur, but he's, he's just yeah. very reliable. Exactly. But he also, ways. you know, got into the writing. He he was very focused on on making the scripts a certain way. So that... that and then I got into a debate at the party with Michael Srago, who's been working with Criterion, who's, who's, a, who's a well-known... Uh, critic and and he uh, we were debating how John Huston is also underappreciated in in the pantheon. He didn't get into uh, Andrew Saris's pantheon. He had to settle for less than meets the eye. And and it, having we were talking about Five Came Back, which is on Netflix, and yeah, he was one of the five directors, and so we were defending him. It's a, it's an interesting. I mean, I think John Huston is somebody where more people know a, a lot of those credits. But it's a, di- a different era of sorts, so it's. Uh, but and also, you know, he's got a famous daughter, so that doesn't hurt. Well, he spanned and a famous yeah. father. Um, famous father. He yeah. directed to to an Oscar. Yep. In, um, yep. The uh, the great treasure of the Sierra Madre. But yeah. but you know, I love things like like um, Heaven Knows, Mr. Allison, with Deborah Carr as a nun stranded on a Pacific island. You know, with with Robert Mitchum. I I like movies like that. Yeah. Yeah. So changing directions here, we should talk about one thing that's our uh, favorite topic, and, and we can't go too many weeks without this coming up, which is Oscar news. There was some award season development here. Yeah, they uh, changed the rules, and they do this every year right after the Oscar uh, Oscars are over. It's not the nuclear it's option, later. but it's something like No, it. no, this is the normal course of events. And as, as expected, as predicted, as rumored, they changed the documentary rules so that there will never be another O.J. Made in America, a five-part, eight-hour uh, ESPN That series. feels like the way that it's being, it's being processed, it feels like such a smackdown like like as if the academy is saying you know this movie never should have won in the first place Mm. i agree with you and i think it's i actually don't um i I don't think that this is i understand why they're doing it because there really was quite an uproar from all the people who had to compete with oj made in america right so great it was a great category this year too i mean yeah exactly and they're trying really hard uh to define movies as opposed to things that are television series that are eligible for Emmys. And so most of the movies that are documentaries today are in fact financed and shown on television. And that is just the way it is. And the industry doesn't seem to be, you know, the the Academy doesn't seem to be recognizing that there is a digital universe out there and different kinds of financing for documentaries. And Netflix has Five Came Back, which is a three-part one that isn't going to be eligible. And then you have the Grateful Dead movie that's a f- that played in one big four-hour block up at Sundance, and then it's going to be broken into six parts on Amazon. So those are not going to be eligible. It almost makes me wonder. I mean, it's, it's all, I hate this word, but it's all content. And this will never happen. But when you think about how film festivals are starting to show TV, they're creating spaces for TV. They're not trying to program TV as movies, but putting it in their own block. I mean, because they want people to show up sure. and they want stuff that's going to be popular. But when you think about the, the Oscars, want stuff that's going to be popular too. I mean, when they expand the best picture category to 10, 
slots that part of that was how do we get blockbusters in here it isn't necessarily 10 it's five it, to ten. up to 10 but yeah. the the question i have is and why not create some sort of episodic slot at the oscars to acknowledge these idea, kinds of films actually but they this is about them being first of all they think they're responding to their membership but it's also the documentary branch too so this is the board of governors that would be weighing in on this and making the vote um and and they 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 just keep trying to uh, to to hold up this motion picture. It's the Academy of Motion Picture. Yeah, it's kind of similar to Cannes in some ways. Like this They're, idea. Of, they, uh, I, I we hear rumors. We haven't uh, confirmed them yet. That some of some of the Netflix and Amazon stuff may not wind up there. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just this this idea that you know they whatever cinema is, it's not that thing is something that's going to continue to be a pain point for these organizations. And, well, Amazon you know, isn't. I mean, Amazon had like five movies in right, the last it. year. They're, yeah. they're fine because they have theatrical and they pick these these name auteurs. Right. They found a workaround. So, so that's not the issue, no, uh, for Amazon. But for uh, for Netflix, it is because they're not in theaters. And I think the people at can hold that very dear. So another interesting story on the distribution front this week is uh, there's some news surrounding Annapurna. Uh, actually, a lot of different stuff going on with them, including this uh, exclusive deal they signed with Hulu to uh, to release their films there as their, uh, after, after their theatrical releases. The company is getting into the distribution game, although they haven't released any movies yet. The and they, first you know. one is going to be the Catherine Bigelow untitled Detroit movie. Detroit um, Riots, yeah, which right. supposedly has a name. They just haven't said it yet. So. What do you think it is? I don't know, Detroit. <laughs> doesn't need to be anything too innovative. Yeah, they're these calling days. it the Det Detroit's Project. So that comes on August 4th. And then they have um, Richard Linklater's Where'd You Go, Bernadette, the adaptation right. of Maria Semple's book. And they have 20th Century Women uh, recently and Sausage Party recently. But, but those, are, I mean, they produce those. Yeah, exactly. Right. So This is the new... So they're hiring people. So they've got this guy, Mark Weinstock, who's a studio guy who's been doing marketing at the studio level for a long time. And then uh, and they've hired away from Focus, and they're releasing a couple movies with Focus, um, Adrian Bowles, who's been the head of their publicity effort for years. Years, years yeah. And knows how to do Oscar stuff, which is good because so far Annapurna, of all the production companies that have been around over the last decade or so, has done very, very well. Pretty consistent. Well, Plan B has as well, and now they're, very they're much working in the same together. Mold and Plan B is leaving New Regency and is rumored to be going to Annapurna. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. I mean, they they have similar sensibilities. You know, it, you look at what Annapurna is doing, what Plan B is doing, what A24 is doing, and then Amazon. I mean, you really get a sense of a completely different landscape than just a year or two ago. And we're always hearing about new newcomers. I mean, Neon's got its first release this week with Colossal. That's that's Tom Tom Quinn and Tim League's new company, and you know, very much a company that is a response, I think, on some level to what you know companies like this, like like A24 and Annapurna have been doing in, in terms of the kinds of movies they're putting out there and also the ambitions that they had for them, releasing them pretty widely, trying to get them 
some kind of commercial potential. And Neon, Neon is, is actually making a bid to get into shorts distribution yeah. as well. Very interesting. They'll be, they'll be screening. If you go see Colossal in theaters this weekend, which I recommend, I think it's a cool movie. Uh, don't read too much about it. Yeah, that you'll see a five-minute short film beforehand that played at the Toronto Film Festival. So the idea of creating a platform and acquiring short films is really fascinating because it's sort of a you know underexploited market. There's are you go to any big festival, there's always a ton of shorts, and it puts you in the filmmaker business because a lot of times those shorts are made by people who are then gonna you know make some amazing feature. So it's it's a it's a really I think smart strategy and I. I think these guys have a lot of potential, frankly. I mean, they're smart. They're very aggressive, competitive types. They also have their talents and other aspects of the film industry, especially. Well, they're innovators is what they, what they all are. Yeah. And I think what we're talking about is a sort of second-generation new wave of digitally-focused distributors. That doesn't mean they don't go to theaters, but they have a wider... Uh, footprint. They know how to play the game in different platforms. Well, digitally they're savvy. Limited. Yeah, they're yeah. digitally savvy on the marketing side. I mean, the the whole idea of uh, people have said this to me before. You know, spending thirty million dollars on P and A when you know if you understand how people respond to social media marketing that costs next to nothing. You know, it's just a waste of money. So they're 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 just smarter. I mean, you look at the kind of cool and stuff. Smaller and about. leaner. Yeah, you can be lean and. And still do things that are hip, and you know my my kind of litmus test for this sort of thing is, you know, when does a movie get noticed by somebody who is not, you know, a cinephile, not somebody who's just aggressively following everything that's out there? I noticed that happening with A twenty four maybe a year and a half ago, something like that. You know, movies like Under the Skin just getting more that's long, attention. That's more than that. That's yeah, that was maybe two that. years ago, but the. Um, They've the, been doing this for, for quite a few years. They've been years. building up to that, right? It's, uh, there's an incubation. And that movie didn't do any business, I might add. But, yes. But, that's, but, yes. They, but it, but it played into things. their they're favor. Learning. Yeah. Um, and they're, and they're, they've got this direct TV thing, which is a smart play for the movies that can right. just go sort with movie channel. stars and they could sell them differently. Um, but the other, the other interesting idea is, you know, Netflix bringing Scott Stuber in as their head of production and then you you want I, it makes me question what their goals are because he represents a kind of big studio big budget mainstream uh commercial kind of filmmaking he is the exact opposite of what you're talking about with annapurna uh, and these other companies well i mean we we know for a fact that in many ways netflix itself is the opposite at least in terms of the role They're it's not looking theater to play. friendly. No, that not theater friendly. And not necessarily even They're looking to... They're hiring Adam Sandler to make <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, not exactly looking to make a, a brand imprint that's associated with quality cinema. That doesn't mean they don't always have it. Deal, they made the deal with, with uh, Scorsese for The Irishman, but for me, to my mind, that is a very commercial, mainstream-sounding, at least, movie. That is not, that is not the silence. That right. is something much it's, more commercial. Yeah, so in paper. theory, and, it, and, it, and it's more ambitious. Not supported the studios, but I could see why Netflix would find it, so. Exactly, and it's got a star in it. And it, I mean, look, those guys have algorithms up the wazoo. I hear, I was hearing somebody was telling me it, uh, in San Francisco about how the Netflix people are out here all the time, you know, hanging out with data people. And, I mean, there's a whole separate conversation going That's on. That's a whole other thing company. where Silicon Valley has disrupted 
Yeah. Business. Yeah, technology has completely changed the way that we think about all these things, and yet. And then Google, what what you YouTube has gotten into yeah, putting YouTube red. On YouTube. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, look, everybody with a platform is going to start to try these things. I mean, it's only a matter of time before we start seeing more original content on iTunes. And I mean, it's if you have an audience, why turn to other people to provide you with the content for that audience? So uh, I think it's going to be an interesting couple of years as more and more people wake up to that. But uh, it's also nice to see companies like IFC and Magnolia still kind of at it. IFC's well, got a they good were the movie first. opening this week. You know, they were the pioneers, and what they what they do and what they've learned. Now, didn't no Magnolia had an interesting um, milestone. Magnolia has uh, I'm not your Negro made seven million dollars, or it's on track to make seven million dollars, which is which is a pretty remarkable figure. And IFC's got a. a Romanian movie opening this week, Graduation, I which uh, I think, I mean, it's driven by reviews and so forth. You. It could do all right. I mean, I, I think that's kind of interesting, too, because it's, you know, I would say Colossal is the cool, fun, different movie to go see this weekend. But Graduation is is kind of like the, the old art house model of a good movie. You go to that, you get a very specific kind of experience totally of that relatable, culture by the way i mean it, it may be romanian but and it's a foreign language movie but it's a it's a family story and it's a father-daughter story and there's secrets and there's lies and there's cover-ups and there's yeah. goals that are uh with, it, with hidden motivations it's really it's, bleak but it, the emotion is very there. good we could, any parent and child could relate to this to it's this very movie. interesting the whole the whole this basic scenario is this woman this young woman gets a scholarship to a british university but then this terrible thing happens and her academic future is isn't sort of thrown in into and doubt her father isn't necessarily always acting in her best interest although yeah. he thinks he is yeah he, he kind of wants to cut some corners and i mean it's really interesting it's, a corrupt, because, it's about yeah. a cor- how far will you go in terms of giving into a corrupt system yeah to give your child an advantage yeah i know and i i, I think it's it's not quite on the level of four months three weeks two days uh but I, but i think it's in some ways, it's more accessible. I mean, it's I think not, it's way more accessible. Yeah. I mean, I loved that movie, but this is—that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, this is not a hard movie to sit through at all. It's really compelling. Yeah. So you know, making a double bill with Colossal, one of those will probably sit well with you, no matter who you are. So uh, next week, I guess we can try to see Fate of the Furious and spend a half an hour talking through the the nuances of Dwayne Johnson and Vin Diesel spat and whether or not it was a marketing gimmick, but. Maybe we'll find something else to talk about. Who knows? I'm sure that uh, I'll see a couple more things here in San Francisco. You can keep checking out some TCM things and soon to discover whether or not more Academy rules show up and we have to talk about the Oscars or not. We'll see. You see don't you like talking about the Oscars. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm dreading it, but, I, but I'm sort of I'm putting it out there because anything's possible at this point. 